just no, no, he was professor oh. at Michigan. Oh. Then went to University of Chicago. Oh. Then Columbia. So it's just he started from the bottom. Now look at him. Oh snap! Hello, 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 and welcome back to Center Ed Teaching. Uh, so glad you're here to join us again this week as we follow up on our Keep the Kids Talking podcast with a podcast about school discipline and. Um, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart as an educator and a researcher, and I couldn't be happier to be doing this with Brian. Hey, y'all. Um, I think we're going to have some overlapping and competing perspectives that should hopefully make for a fruitful discussion. Um, so I think the first thing that we need to talk about, Brian, is there's all this talk about classroom management. What is it that we mean? Is it the same thing that we meant 20 years ago or what's going on with that? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. When I was coming up as a teacher, um, doing my teacher ed courses in the the late '90s, um, classroom management was what we called this practice of um, keeping kids on task in the classroom. Um, and uh, I had a course that was called classroom management, and it really was uh, uh, it really was what it sounded like. Um, it positioned the teacher as the manager, supervisor, enforcer of laws, as the authority in the classroom who, um, who really kind of kept order, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems to me that over the past, you know, almost 20 years um, since, that, since that class that I took, um, uh, we pivoted a bit to start talking more about establishing communities within our classroom or establishing a, a culture of engagement and learning within the classroom community. And it's, so it's less about, uh, it seems to me the conversation today is less about how do we top down enforce the law and more about how do we make sure everyone feels um, engaged and included in a meaningful way. Now, that's not to say that there isn't also a conversation about how do you, you know, get help students get back on track when they drift a little too far from the shore. But, um, and that's what I think these days we call classroom management. Um, but in general, uh, I think what we're talking about, we, have a, we sort of have a broader view, a more holistic view of um, how do we just make sure that everyone in the classroom has the opportunity to learn um, in the manner that's, that suits them. But is that view new? I mean, I know you're a huge fan of Dewey and... I mean, isn't this <laughs> kind of an idea that Dewey had? Yeah, as I, as I call him, uh, St. John of 120th Street. <laughs> um, uh, no, I, you know, the view is not new. And um, uh, as we were preparing for this podcast, it, uh, I, I went back to John Dewey's uh, experience in education. Um, and, and for those of you who haven't read any Dewey, if I could make a pitch, experience in education is really kind of the, um, the, the tightest little um, expression of his overall vision and philosophy of education. It's not a particularly long book, um, and he kind of sums up many decades of this thinking. Um, and in it, there's a, there's a chapter that's called Social Control. Um, and, you know, when I first read that title, I was sort of like, ooh, this is, sounds a little grim, especially written in the 30s, like, oh, oh what are we talking about? <laughs> but um, uh, Dewey's notion is that um, uh, communities regulate themselves. Communities establish rules, they establish norms, mores, and then within the community there is um, either uh, approval or disapproval that is expressed among the members of the community. 
Um, so uh, uh, a way that he starts to get into this is talking about games. Mm-hmm. Um, well, games and sports have rules, and the rules are agreed upon by everyone who participates in the game. Otherwise, you don't have a game if you don't have rules. In mm-hmm. fact, I've used this language when talking about like testing as well, right? But Dewey, as he describes how um, people voluntarily commit to follow rules in order to participate in the same game, mm-hmm. says people in communities voluntarily commit to follow the norms, the, the, the mores of that, the rules of that community in order to be members of the community. So if community membership is uh, a thing that is desirable, then people will follow the rules in order to stay part of that community. And, um, and the community will, to an extent, enforce those rules or, or, or police folk who start to push up mm-hmm. against the boundaries of it. Now, Dewey also recognizes that um, this isn't a thing that necessarily happens organically, that there can be choices and structures put in place by an authority figure, mm-hmm. the teacher in this case, to help, um, to help foster this sense of community, especially among young people, especially very young people, mm-hmm. um, there needs to be some sort of guidance, some sort of oversight and support to help the community build those structures. Um, and then there will be some folk who drift a little, you know, away from those norms. And then it's the teacher's role to help bring them back mm-hmm. into the good graces of the community through what we would traditionally potentially call classroom management, um, sort of the, the enforcement angle that comes with being the authority figure in the classroom. Um, but if uh, I can just actually yeah. jump in on that, I mean, because I think you're using community here, but I think also connecting to Dewey's larger work is yeah. kind of participating in a democracy, right? And not just an educa- educated citizenry, but these are the rules of operating within a democracy. This is how we discord or just dis- engage in discourse with mm-hmm. one another. This is how we approach problems that we have in democracy and resolve them. And so it's actually inculcating that at an early age through what students are already naturally inclined to do. And I mean, again, to build on your point, Dewey, for what a lot of people see as idealistic rhetoric, was also a pragmatist. Oh, absolutely. And so this belief in practicality for the structures that were needed um, were there. I, I also want to build on this because something, I mean... Maybe we can get very philosophical and, Let's do it. And, and bring in Foucault in this, but thinking about what happens in school as discipline and punishment. Yep. Um, and so I think we often frame that punishment instills discipline, but mm-hmm. I think when we're talking about classroom management, discipline in a way can be something that you're trying to instill and punishment is a last resort or maybe that should be the view. And so discipline would fall under the line of teacher redirects yep. of rules in the classroom. Like something even as simple as when you turn in an assignment, you write your name in the upper left hand or upper right hand corner because we have orders. So these things can be done. Punishment may be more something along the lines of what we think of suspension or yeah. expulsion or a send out saying you violated these rules. This is your punishment. And I know we're going to get in to punishments later with the severity and kind of the issues that that creates. But I think when we're talking about classroom management, so often we think about, oh, what's going to happen with this punishment as opposed to how do we instill discipline in a way that respects the student's individuality in the classroom, but also creates order and buy-in that allows the class to continue to move onward. Yeah, and now into sort of very gently push back against this this phrasing of instill discipline. Yeah. Because instill to me it sounds like there's an uh, an agent, a subject if you will, and who is acting upon objects 
um, in the form of the students, perhaps. So the, the, the teacher instills discipline. It's kind of like the teacher teaches the content as opposed to thinking about the learners as um, uh, blossoming or uh, flourishing or um, acquiring the skills and the knowledge that they need. So if the idea is that we want our students to leave our classrooms, to leave our schools as self-disciplined agents who can participate in communities, then how do we encourage students to develop um, self-discipline? Well, we we, as the, the authority figures of the classroom, we, the teachers, mm-hmm. do have to sort of impose some structures, but those structures, I think, ought to be designed in such a way that they help the students um, uh, foster self-discipline. So just the idea of your name and your header goes mm-hmm. in the top left corner of your page, right? What's the purpose of that move on the part of the teacher? Well, it could be simply... I have 150 papers to grade every time I do an assignment. This has to be there for the sake of efficiency. As a member of the community, you need to recognize these are the, the, the currents that affect our workflow here. So your participation in this structure, this r- ritual, this routine that we have in the classroom um, is necessary to help the whole, you know, move the whole enterprise forward. Um, so in terms of instilling discipline, um, as you say, uh, uh, I think it, for me that, think, that, that, that makes me think about like, uh, the routines of mm-hmm. classroom life. This is where you hang your coat. This is where you put away the markers, this sort of a thing. Um, so, that, um, so that we are sometimes explicitly but usually just implicitly teaching um, how to be a... Um, I don't know, a, a, a polite and um, contributing member to your community. Um, now, whether, and I say often implicitly, but sometimes explicitly, starts to get to me into this idea of the hidden curriculum that we've mm-hmm. talked about in the past, too. Um, you know, oftentimes uh, we can be very uh, upfront with our students about um, here are our norms, here are our rules, here is the escalation of consequences should you break them. Um, and in that case, we're explicitly teaching this um, sort of um, uh, discipline that we're trying to um, encourage our students to take on and then perhaps uh, explicitly teaching how we are going to do that, like what's the, the shepherd's crook, if you will. Um, but oftentimes this is stuff isn't taught outright to mm-hmm. the students. Um, instead, it's a, it's a thing that the students acquire by watching and listening mm-hmm. and um, experiencing the, the moves and the, 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 the choices that teachers make. Um, so how the decisions, the sort of the pedagogical decisions about whether or not to make that explicit or, Im- or implied um, is also like sort of interesting for me here as I ramble off. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, I think it makes sense. And I think one thing that that brings up for me is how this looks different at different age levels. Yeah. Um, what becomes implicit and what's explicit. Um, and in some ways I think, you know, we would maybe think as students get older, be more explicit about it so that mm-hmm. they can, because they quote unquote have the critical reasoning skills at that age to do it. Yeah. But they could also have that at a younger age. But I think the distinction that you're pulling out is maybe not as much a distinction, but how gray the area can be and how that sometimes can lead us to be um, overly punitive or over restrictive in our discipline because we might have something that we're trying to help students cultivate. Yeah. But it can be very quickly become a little too much and it becomes this instilling idea that you were taking issue with. And I think rightfully so. 
Um, so I don't know if that takes us anywhere new, but I do think that like that gets at kind of this gray area that does make these things so difficult. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking right now about um, in certain um, more structured educational environments, um, uh, there's a notion that students ought to sit in their chairs with their backs upright, their hands folded, and eyes track the teacher at all time. And mm-hmm. these are routines that are um, enforced um, because they're... I, I, I don't know because, <laughs> but I, it seems to me because um, uh, these are habits that the school wishes to um, uh, fo- uh, encourage students to form, um, and they're going to do that by having a, a sort of a rigid, prescriptive, top-down approach to that. And I don't, those aren't meant, rigid, prescriptive, and top-down aren't meant to be normative. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, me- they're, they're meant to be just sort of descriptive. It's like top-down, the the powers that be decide track the teacher at all times with your eyes it can be prescriptive as this is the thing that you do that we have prescribed it for you and it can be rigid as there's no flexibility there's no um gray area for when students might not do this mm-hmm. sort of tracking behavior so all those things might happen with the very best of intentions um but the question for me starts to get into this idea of um uh, students agency and you know are they being taught how to behave, or are they learning how to behave, and what that difference is? Um, it starts to become like really fascinating to me um, in this conversation. Yeah, and maybe this is something that we can return to later. But I think like what you just alluded there opens up to you know something else that's been uh, interesting and that's been debated. You know, KIPP, um, the yeah. charter organization, had this big quote unquote innovation right where they were going to teach grit. Yep. And there became all these problems with what does that mean when you are teaching like someone grit or Mm -hmm. or how do you understand that? And so, um, I do have some, maybe more things to (laughs) to complicate what you were saying, but we do have an agenda we should get through and then maybe can return to. Um, I guess we've talked about and kind of alluded to this, but why is there such an emphasis on, um, classroom management, school discipline and punish? I mean, to, like whom does it serve? Yeah. Um, both aspirationally and pragmatically at the school level. Um, I mean, and what is? I guess maybe we can hold off on what the purpose is since we've talked about that a sure. little bit already. Well, the, I think it might be useful for us to talk about um, whom does it serve and whom should it serve. Mm. Um, so uh, I'll start with this with the latter. Whom should it serve? Well, I think that all decisions within a school building ought to serve the students' learning. Right? That is to say that every single decision we make, curriculum, instruction, assessment, management, all of those decisions ought to be chosen in such a way that they help facilitate students' learning. Now, that said, I think a lot of classroom management choices are made to help facilitate um, sometimes a teacher's sense or feeling of being in control in the classroom. Um, you know, as a as a young early career teacher, I looked out into to the room and saw 32 students, you know, not all looking back at me. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't have a, a tracking sort of classroom, if you will. Um, but when I look out at that room and I think about, okay, I need to maintain some semblance of order in this room because if it becomes too disordered, then students' learning will start to suffer, right? Now, that ought to be my motivation, but really what I'm thinking is, they're going to eat me alive. I need to maintain control. And then there's this sort of um, adversarial relationship, I think, that that, for me, set up between, you know, I kind of had this 
almost a jailer role in a way, which started to feel very weird for me. Anyways, I think that oftentimes these management, um, these discipline choices are meant to, or, or they often are there to help the teacher feel better about being in control than it is to necessarily I like one of the things that that I come back to all the time is wearing hats in the classroom right like is taking off your hat gonna help you learn better I don't know right maybe maybe not you could try to convince me but I can't think of a way that not having a hat on is gonna help you learn better now we could spin that out to say like a bigger picture sort of idea certain hats are problematic for certain reasons so we're not gonna do it or um societal values like take off your hat indoors as a measure of politeness is a thing that we want to teach students. But then I've seen teachers get into public conflicts with students about they won't take their hat off. Like, well, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, if, is taking that kid's hat off going to help him learn any better? And that's where things start to get a little sort of tricky for me. Like, why did the teacher really feel the need to, to die on that hill that day? I don't know. But, um, yeah, so I, I think this is, <laughs> this is, this is the great back and forth. Um, so I think like one thing with the hat example, and then I want to return to what you were saying earlier is I think we can't just say that classroom management exists within a classroom, right? It's throughout a school. Yeah, and so it absolutely. could very well be a school rule that no hats are allowed in the building. Yeah. And there could be this emphasis that if we have these rules and then they are not upheld within that classroom, then we no longer have that position of authority. Absolutely. And that can be a problem. So something as simple as a hat can become problematic. Now we can disagree and say, well, that rule actually doesn't impact students' learning, but a teacher in that moment can't necessarily have that fight. What I want to return to, though, is like, for whom do these rules benefit? Mm -hmm. And I think it's so interesting that you situate it as for the teacher's benefit when I think it eventually gets there, but I think there's another line of thinking that becomes this particular student or these three students are disrupting the learning of other students Absolutely. in the class. And so those students must not either be in this class, must um, be treated accordingly so that they no longer act out and become um, the main focus of that disciplinary power within the school, which then possibly helps other students learn but at the sacrifice mm -hmm. um of those other students and so i think it's you know one of those things that is that the right thing to to do or not and and, and how do we navigate that and i think for me as a teacher that was one of the things i struggled with um the most yeah i totally agree with you and that and I appreciate the clarification there, you know, to say that that kid not taking off his hat, it's not going to affect his learning one way or the mm -hmm. other. Now, is that kid not taking off his hat going to affect someone else's learning? And if that's the case, which I can't imagine that it is, but right. if that's the case, then certainly it's the teacher's responsibility to intervene there. So it's not just about individual students learning, but everyone in the room ought to be given the opportunity to learn um, given the precious time that, uh, you know, precious fleeting time that is the classroom, um, that is in the classroom. So, yeah, I think uh, if, if one student is disengaged and is not learning, that's one thing. But if that mm -hmm. student then disrupts the learning of other people, that, again, 
is a that's that seems to be like a, a level up an escalation um, in a way um, that uh, it need the teacher needs to get in there and respond and, and intervene if the community isn't going to do it itself. Well, and I think Very maybe strange. and maybe this will lead into our next conversation is how the teacher responds in yeah. that way. Right, because if the response is that you are disrupting the learning of others, mm-hmm. you have lost your privilege or whatever word that you want to use to be in this classroom or to get this teaching, that is incredibly problematic. Yeah. Because if the idea is that part of the reason we talk about discipline is that we want students that are self-disciplined, that are going to be active participants in our democracy and are going to shape their world, the world and their image, taking away that opportunity seems, at least to me, highly problematic. So I guess how as teachers do we effectively kind of maintain... Um, the classroom, manage the classroom, uh, maintain the culture while respecting students and continuing to help them flourish instead of um, more punitive measures that could be harmful to students. Sure. Um, That's pretty easy. Uh, (laughs) Well, first thing I want to point out is that um, what we're doing now is sort of pivoting away from um, sort of like what the the bigger picture of um, you know a- establishing the community within the classroom mm-hmm. and now getting more toward the the nitty gritty of how teachers you know enforce the law so to speak um, and wh- the first thing that I'd like to point out is that in the um, Danielson teacher um, effectiveness rubric the teacher rating rubric um, that comes from the Danielson framework for for teaching um, they tease out or she Charlotte teases out two lines here like one is um, uh, trait 2A, which is creating a community of, I think it's rapport and respect, or creating mm-hmm. an environment of respect and rapport. So that's more of our sort of like Deweyan notion of, of let's all work together to get this thing done. Um, and then uh, trait 2D is managing student behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, the sort of the interventions that teachers have to make. Um, but before we make those interventions, I think it's really important for us to try to understand students motivations or try to understand like what's behind student actions um and in order to help teachers think through this um i make use of a framework that we use here um at cpet when doing our coaching work that we call the the four d's Ooh. Um, yeah I'll, <laughs> I'll get to that in a second but here's the here's the here's basically the way i use it um the first thing i do is i try to um make the, the words that we use in the workshop as descriptive as possible. Mm-hmm. I don't want any um, sort of analysis or inference, evaluation, or judgment of student behaviors. I simply want to describe the behaviors themselves. So then I give teachers post-it notes and I say, just on one per post-it note, write down as many off-task student behaviors mm-hmm. as you can think of, ones that are common in your classroom or ones that are enduring in your classroom. And specifically use that language of off-task student behavior to say not, so that we don't say misbehavior. Mm. Misbehavior, to me, can start to get into the normative territory and can start to seem um, problematically uh, judgmental or evaluative. Um, that's not to say the students don't misbehave, but it's to say that we can all... We can say that all of these behaviors are off-task. Now mm. we can get into start to dig into the, the what's going on behind those off-task behaviors. Mm-hmm. So after teachers have written them down, and they write down a lot of them. Yeah, so if I'm a teacher, and let's say that I write down, um, student isn't paying attention. Okay. Um, so I, my question for that would be, how do you know they're not paying attention? 
Mm-hmm. Right? Like, what do you actually observe the student doing? Because not paying attention, um, they're that 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 you need some evidence to tell me that they're they're not paying attention. Um, for example, if a student isn't making eye contact with you while you're mm-hmm. lecturing, does that mean they're not paying attention? Or if they're mm-hmm. crumpling up a wad of paper in order to throw it across the classroom, does that mean they're not paying attention? So. I would say either of those could mean that they're not paying attention, but also I can imagine a world where a student is paying attention whilst mm-hmm. doing either of those things, and I can imagine it because I was that kid. So, so I mean, so I would, like if I was the teacher in this workshop, right. then I would want to rewrite this, or you would push me to rewrite this. And so let's say instead of writing that the student wasn't paying attention, I wrote student was writing on his desk. Right. So there we go. That's very descriptive. Okay. Now you can tell me a behavior that is off task, right? Because he's not supposed to be writing on his desk right now, mm-hmm. so he's off the task. Um, and you are describing it to me without evaluation, without judgment. And that's the sort of thing that I want teachers to articulate. So once we've so got... just, by the way, yeah. this is something you all, as you're listening to this, can actually do oh, along with us. Yeah, but, yeah. play along, y'all. <laughs> um, make sure you got a lot of Post-it notes handy. <laughs> um, and so what I do with a group of teachers usually is once we've um, uh, ri- all written down all our Post-it notes... Um, I then ask them to categorize these off-task behaviors, these descriptions of off-task behaviors, um, according to the four Ds framework. And now our four Ds are disengaged, disruptive, disrespectful, and defiant. Mm. Those are our four Ds. Disengaged, disruptive, disrespectful, defiant. And we think of them as a, um, uh, as a continuum, mm-hmm. right? Where the lowest level, you know, the least problematic off-task student behaviors mm-hmm. are ones that are brought about by a student not being engaged mm-hmm. with the task, so they are disengaged. The highest problem or the most problematic off-task mm-hmm. behaviors are ones where the student is deliberately being defiant um, uh, toward a teacher or other community member. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I ask that my teachers to put their sticky notes on the wall according to this this um, continuum, and what we always discover is the vast majority of these off-task student behaviors come from the student being disengaged. Okay, so but I want to ask a follow-up question about that with the example that we were talking with yeah. earlier. So, say for instance that I'm a teacher who has written that student uh, was writing on his desk. Mm-hmm. You could make a case that that's a defiant behavior, mm-hmm. um, that that's a disrespectful behavior. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think a lot of those things can fall into those characterizations. So how is it that everything, or most everything, falls into disengage? Um, so, first of all, I would say that, uh, again, with as with all these things, we gather our evidence, we gather our data, so those are our descriptions of the behaviors. But then I would ask sort of probing questions to try to mm-hmm. get at, like, is this a regular behavior with student mm-hmm. writing on the desk? Um, what were they writing on the desk? Um, like uh, I have a, a, a <laughs> I've had some really great classroom graffiti in my my days, and some of which was actually like really quite funny, mm-hmm. um, and some of which you could clearly see was a doodle, but some of which was um, one student writing about another student mm-hmm. in a very problematic way. Um, now I would start to say that gets into the realm of disrespectful, not showing disrespect toward me as the teacher, but mm. toward fellow community members. Yeah, yeah. So really um, um, scratching the surface of what's going on and trying to get toward understanding why a student is doing what they're doing. I'll, I'll 
run it back for you to my hat example. Mm -hmm. So, um, and this is a thing that I've seen in a classroom. Um, The student didn't want to take off their hat. I learned later talking to the student one-on-one because um, they were having a bad hair day. And I Mm -hmm. don't mean to say that in a sort of a trite way. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a student who has internalized media messages about African-American hair. Mm -hmm. And for him, he has learned from his parents to never go out with a nappy head. Mm-hmm. So he was wearing a hat because for him to not show the happy nappy head by wearing the hat was actually more respectful. He was wearing the hat out of respect as opposed to being disrespectful. But the white teacher thought that student was being disrespectful for not taking off his hat. So right away, trying to understand why a student is doing the thing they're not meant to be doing, mm-hmm. um, that really goes a long way toward... Um, figuring out what's going on, and then intervening in the appropriate way. So I think a couple of things that we should maybe pull out from what you just said. One is that this process, the four Ds, is Mm. to not react to student behavior, but rather to reflect and say, okay, when am I making a leap or an assumption Mm -hmm. that is imposing some kind of... um, thinking behind behavior that very well might not exist. Yeah, it's a reflective framework. Yeah, and but then I think there's this other layer of what you're talking about here, about possible differences between students and teachers, mm-hmm. and that there may be places um, where they have differing views of different things. And yeah. I think in the example that you've given highlights one of the ones that is most written about really in schools, and that is white teachers and their African-American students within their schools. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, it's just such a meaty subject. I I guess I don't know if we want to go down that rabbit hole because it is so complex because at what point are you, if you are a white teacher with a non-white population, are you using your privilege and power to instill rules without even understanding the context and the framework that you're working within to respect students and their opinions and their ideas? Um, Yeah, it's, I mean... it's this is a, a deep subject that we can and should plumb, but I, I'll I'll say this um, at a very sort of broad level. Um, I think that um, we have to we as teachers have to try to understand our students' motivations, understand their desires and their boundaries, um, in order to not overreact to mm-hmm. their off-task behaviors. Um, to put a different way. Um, Unless we know the know what's really going on, unless we get the fuller understanding, we might misdiagnose and then take action that escalates mm-hmm. a problem rather than de-escalates a problem. We might take action that keeps a student from learning rather than attempts to bring a student back into the fold to facilitate their learning. So without a sort of deeper or and or deeper is the perhaps the wrong word, but but a, a fuller understanding of what's motivating student behavior, we could, you know, really get into some, some trouble here. Like this kid keeps falling asleep in my classroom, mm-hmm. right? Well, there's, that's very descriptive. Great. Kid keeps falling asleep in the classroom, but is it because she goes to a job after school and works that job until seven and then goes home and takes care of younger siblings? And so by the time she gets to your first period class, she's just tired. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to impose some sort of sanction or discipline because don't fall asleep in my classroom Mm -hmm. well now you've made it worse (laughs) rather than making it better um so 
Um, and cultural miscommunications or cultural misunderstandings, whether they're based around race or class or any cultural signifier, um, these can these these are everyday and these are super problematic. Um, and um, I think part of the value of the '40s reflective framework or any reflective framework you want to use um, is to, as a teacher, catch your breath and try to really. Th- Think about what's going on in your classroom. Think about what your students are, are bringing and um, and trying to make good choices that are in service of students learning as opposed to anything else. Yeah, and if I can actually build on that, because I, I think going back again to the 4D framework, I think that's a great practice for teachers to do to reflect and say, oh, these are things that happen that maybe I'm assuming too much attentionality to without really understanding what's going on. And going forward, I want to make sure that I don't do that. But I think there's another thing that is important for teachers to do, and that's to like assume that all of your students want to learn. Yes. And that your job as a teacher is to help that stu- student yes. learn. So if a student is off task, you do at some point want to get to the why behind that. Mm-hmm. And you do want to have that full conversation, but that is very hard to do for every student in every single moment. Yeah. But if you can assume that that student wants to learn, so that student's continuously falling asleep, mm-hmm. okay, maybe I'm going to continue to stand by that student. Maybe I'm going to circulate the room and make sure every two minutes I come by that student yeah. and I have a conversation with that. Because one of the things that I often like see in classrooms is that there are teachers that label students as misbehaviors or you know they're not interested in learning and so these small interventions of proximity of leaning over real quick saying like hey like you can do this like those type of things go by the wayside yeah and everything all of a sudden becomes this escalation and you've been so precise with words and you've called me out when I was wrong (laughs) and I want to return back to something you said when you said like when (laughs) when a student has a problem I think even thinking in that way that like oh this is a problem Problem. that needs to be rectified is not the right way that we think about it we should think about oh this student might not be learning right now Mm -hmm. how can I help facilitate that learning Um, and I think that starts to change the dynamics of what discipline in your classroom looks like because your discipline is not to an authority. Right. Your discipline is to, oh, I'm in this process of learning and I'm learning that sometimes I get off track. Yeah. And I've got to get back on track. Mm-hmm. That sometimes there are things that I have to do and I might be tired, but I, I try to push through it. And, you know, at some point we don't want to say that, oh, yes, if you're tired, you can't like ever sleep. We, we don't want to send that message. But I think inculcating this self-discipline in students' own learning should be the goal, not discipline to punishment. Right. Sorry, that was a long spiel. I well, don't know if that made sense. It, it did make sense, and, and it reminds me of, a, you know, as we start to, you know, we've already started to talk a little bit about this idea of interventions. You mentioned proximity. You mentioned mm-hmm. circulating. So um, I, start, I call these interventions, right, um, rather than punishments or, or, you know, any other sort of uh, language you can use that's more... Um, oriented toward the idea of punishment. Mm -hmm. Um, That is to say, if a student is off task and is not um, engaged in the process of learning, how do we just get them back on task? How do we redirect their attention? And there are a number of different ways that are like classic interventions, Mm -hmm. um, like the the proximity. Um, I used to sit in the back of this one classroom where this one teacher was just masterful at it. And she could just very kind of gently like walk up and stand right at a student's elbow and if they still didn't 
if she still didn't have their attention, just two fingers gently on the shoulder, and they would look at her, and they'd, they'd know, oh, I'm not, yeah, okay, and then they're back on task, and that was just part of her teacher persona in the mm-hmm. room, and I think each of us as teachers finds their own way, like what feels natural and right for us, what are mm-hmm. the interventions that work best for us, so there are there are no prescriptions, there are no, you know, magic wands to wave. Wait, wait, can you share with everyone the pen? Oh, yeah, yeah, so this was, this was, <laughs> this is one of my favorites, um, that it's something that just happened organically, um, my first year teaching, I was a traveler, I didn't have my own classroom, and the, um, sort of, uh, punishment structure that I was putting into place as a first year teacher was mm-hmm. the classic, if you act up, I'll put your name on the board. That means five minutes after class. Mm-hmm. Uh, every check mark on the board after your name was five more minutes. You know, real, it's, it's what I was subjected to as a student. So I turned around and did it to mine. Um, but because I didn't have a class... Not that you're recommending that practice. No. Anymore. Well, I mean, look, honestly, depending on your students and your community and the mm-hmm. values and the... I mean, that's a totally valid intervention. Yeah. Um, uh, I didn't use it much after that year because I figured out other ways, but... Um, because I didn't have my own classroom, I didn't have my own chalkboard, I would write student names on my hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, uh, I would always write them using a pen, a click pen, that I wore in the front of my shirt. I started to notice that when I pulled out the pen to write down a student's name, the class would go quiet, even before I said whose name it was or wrote down a name. And then I recognized that I could have nonverbal cues that would help get one or more students back on task Mm -hmm. without punishing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I felt like there was kind of a low hum from one corner of the room or the whole room, I could just rest my hand on the pen while it was still attached to my shirt. Perhaps I would even tap it a little bit, never interrupting my instruction. Mm -hmm. Then if I needed to escalate a little bit, I could take out the pen and I could gesture with it. Maybe I tap the whiteboard with it. Maybe I point at students with it, not in an accusatory way, but sort of like imagine like that, that hand gesture Bill Clinton used to make. I mean, it was the 90s. Um, so <laughs> so I would kind of like, you know, wave the, the pen in the air. Then if I needed an auditory cue, I could click the pen. I could do it really loud. I could mm-hmm. do it, you know, repeatedly. Just all of these nonverbal cues before ever writing a student's name in my hand. Um, also, by the way, I'd kind of a trick sometimes I would pull on students. Is even if my day had been really great and there were no names on my hand, and I was going into last period and I just didn't want any trouble, I would just fill my hand with names and my students would come in and be like, oh, Mr. V's hand is full of ink, he's mad. And they would be really good for me that day. So (laughs) So I want to pull out something from what you said there that seems to maybe go in contradiction to the previous parts of the conversation, but I think actually gets back to the pragmatism that we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation. And that is you want to have a discipline structure that is built through a community ethos. Correct. In involvement. Yeah. That said, sometimes it is your responsibility as an authoritarian figure. Yeah. And you can demonstrate that authority. Now, the way that you were talking about doing that there is in a very low-risk way. Yeah. That doesn't impugn upon students some kind of punishment that's retributive, that is disrespectful in any particular way, but a calling of like, hey, return back to work. Yeah. And, and I think... I don't want that to seem like that's in contradiction to the rest of the conversation because I think it's a very practical part of, in addition to this community ethos, you do from time to time, insert yourself as an authority. Figure. Yeah, I think you have to. Um, at that, that As a teacher, that is part of your role. <laughs> and 
I think thinking about an authority, authority figure who is authoritative without mm. being authoritarian is an important distinction. Yeah. Um, and, and students, again, um, because they're incredibly perceptive and they watch everything that's going on, students will know when you are veering toward the authoritarian mm-hmm. side of things. Do this because I said so and that's why, as opposed to the authoritative. Do this because that is in keeping with our community standards. And I'm here to make sure that you are getting the opportunity to learn. And right now I see that's not working for you. So I'm trying to redirect you toward learning as opposed to I am trying to get you to shut up. Right, mm-hmm. and that's the difference between authoritative and authoritarian, and I think that's um, it's a line that that you know, I and uh, you know, all we all cross, we all cross it at some yeah. point. You know, it just it just happens. Um, but uh, recognizing that, um, I mean, to go all the way back to Dewey's idea that um, the way people um, exceed to, or they accept the rules of the game in order to mm-hmm. play, well, there's a referee. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, just like uh, in, you know, popular sports these days, you'll hear announcers say like, oh, the referee's making himself part of the game or he's, you know, that's perhaps an authoritarian referee as mm-hmm. opposed to an authoritative referee. Just call the balls and strikes or whatever sport you want to attach here. Right. Call the fouls. But then administer the proper intervention mm-hmm. according to the to the to the community expectations, agreed upon community rules and then keep it going. You're there to point thing point digressions out not to affect the game can i make a really like extended metaphor and analogy since we're on sports we're we're just come on (laughs) you know how we do (laughs) so technically in basketball yeah if you foul someone you You are supposed to raise your hand to let it know that happened however sometimes someone will foul someone else and will not want to admit that they committed that foul or will insist that they did not. Mm -hmm. Hence the placement of the referee to ensure Mm -hmm. that those rules are followed and enforced as necessary because the hope is that everyone within the game will do it. But there do needs to be some slight nudges on the edges to keep that in order. Yeah. So So, I think, I think it is really important that um, teachers don't um, teachers don't, feel bad, for lack of a better word, about being authoritative mm-hmm. in the classroom. Um, it's incredibly important that they do. And again, the same goes with curricular choices, um, right. pedagogical, you know, instructional choices. The teacher is invested with authority and needs to make good, measured use of it. You know, not be authoritarian, mm-hmm. but be authoritative. Make, you know, keep that community... On, on the straight and narrow. And it is easier to not be authoritarian when you have that community ethos oh, built up in the classroom. And that's kind of the symbiotic relationship yeah. that in some ways makes this hard to do because it is so hard to balance all those things at once. And that's before throwing on a curriculum Correct. and mandates of testing and, well, <laughs> and all the responsibilities of the job. But because you bring up symbiosis and then you also bring up curriculum, I'll say that there's another symbiotic relationship um, or you know reciprocal relationship, let's say, between um, instruction and mm-hmm. management. That is to say, if good learning tasks are devised and students are engaged in a meaningful way with learning tasks, they are far less likely to get into, you know, trouble, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. They're far less likely to be off-task if they don't want to be off-task because the task is that meaningful or compelling or they can see its use. It's when students are arbitrarily subjected to books they don't want to read or Mm -hmm. tests they don't want to take or even, you know, really cool tasks that they don't want to do for whatever reason, 
um, that they are off task and then off task can lead them down unfortunately a, a kind of a, a decline into some challenging behaviors let's yeah say. and if I can add on I don't think this is a pushback but just add on to that the idea that sometimes we do design really cool assignments or mm -hmm. we have really cool texts but we don't give students the tools that they need to access right. them or do the assignment and so the disengagement is not disengagement with the ideas it's that the way has not been paved to be able to engage with those Correct. ideas. Correct. And if a student is off task it doesn't mean teachers that your task was bad mm -hmm. right you know there isn't it just every student in the classroom is a human being who has history and who has, I mean, who has even history from the previous period. Like mm -hmm. if they've just come from math class and the math class, math teacher yelled at that student, you could be sweet as pumpkin pie to that kid, but they're going to bring that into the room with right. them. And then you just have to recognize that, look at these 30 plus humans in this room. How is this all going to work out? And that's where that fractured attention starts to become challenging for teachers. But to acknowledge the humanity of each student in the room mm -hmm. and try to intervene appropriately in a way that doesn't escalate, that's the, the challenge of the intervention. Yeah, and if I can actually just talk about two teachers that I've worked with, sure. specifically what they've done, they've worked at a school where there's a deduction system where students earn a deduction for various behaviors and being off task. Deduction of like grade points? Or? No, oh. it's, a, it's a behavioral point. So oh, okay. a certain amount of deductions um, creates issues. And so with the teachers, we wanted to focus on, okay, well, for your male students, they seem to be getting disproportionate amounts of deductions. Mm -hmm. So what can we do to increase learning and decrease this? And so... Working with those teachers, they said, well, whenever I bring students up to the front of the room, I always bring female students. Whenever I have someone read out loud, it's almost always female students. Hmm. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make more of an intentional effort to have my male students have jobs in the class. Okay. In a matter of six weeks, the average deductions that male students, individual male students in those teachers' class would earn went down by two. Okay. Amazingly... The deductions that they would learn earn across all classes went down between six and eight deductions. Huh. Having such a po more positive experience in that one class led to more positive experiences in their other classes. Now the kicker is that the average grade increase oh. was fifteen percent. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the girls' deductions <laughs> went up, you know, because they lost their jobs. But no, no, it, it didn't seem to negatively okay. impact. Um, female discussions and actually one of the teachers we did this cool thing to track discussion and the proportion of who was discussing in the conversation and what they saw is that males started even though they comprised 50% of the classroom had only comprised 20% of the participation mm -hmm. that increased to 40% but the overall participation actually increased by 70% huh. And so it's, it's these little things where we think yeah, yeah. about not that the student's doing something wrong, but what can I do to further get this student engaged in learning that can create these outcomes? See, I, I, I'm really interested in how y'all quantified this too. Like you were really able to track um, behavior and grades um, in response to an intervention. I'm significantly older school and um, I just anecdotally would track my interventions. Um, one of them, like my favorite of all time, is just apologizing to students, mm. especially when I felt like I'd crossed into the authoritarian, or even if I had to be authoritative, but it involved, say, calling out a student publicly, which I know to be problematic, but right. sometimes 
I felt like I had to do it. I would then apologize publicly or privately, depending on how the circumstance called for it. But I would see students respond to the apologies so mm-hmm. positively that it became such a part of what I do um, in terms of like, I can feel when I make a mistake and I may not always have time when it comes mm-hmm. to relating to students. And I may not have the space or the time to, to, to get after it in that moment, but I need to like flag that and come back around. And then students to whom I apologize um, just open up. I mean, like I can just watch their faces mm-hmm. open up. So it's not, you know, I don't have data to back this <laughs> up, but um, just it changes the vibe in the room when you acknowledge the humanity of the other and, <laughs> and you know. And that's the community ethos, right? Yeah. That like sometimes Absolutely. we make mistakes, but then we move on from them. And that's, by the, not only is it, but that's, that could be an intentional move, instructional <laughs> move too. Like I want to model apologizing i want to model conflict resolution and making Mm -hmm. amends and doing that publicly i want to model taking raising my hand when i commit the foul right like (laughs) i i did that my bad i apologize i hope we can move on i don't expect you to i don't have an expectation that we're all good Mm -hmm. but i want to invite us to that conversation um and that's i think that also gets at like what we were talking about before like if a student is off task instead of going to a punitive punishment, saying, like, this is also actually another opportunity Mm -hmm. for you to learn. This is another opportunity through through modeling for you all to learn how to apologize, right? Like, it it very nicely fits. And I think with what we're talking about as an idealized classroom or management of a classroom. Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) So maybe... (laughs) Well, I I was just thinking about one more, if I could. We could sit here and tell classroom management stories. But like I had this one class in this one school where I, I couldn't I couldn't figure it out. The class was just off task, problematic, students weren't giving the opportunity to learn. And so I just stopped like mid year and I was like, Y'all, this isn't working. Mm-hmm. Let's talk. Right? We know we all know it's not working, what's going on? And I, th- I may have even told this story on the podcast before, but they told me that I wasn't yelling at them enough. And I was like, Well, I'm not a yeller, what do you want me to do? Like, we want you to yell at us more. Because that way we know we're off task or we know we're doing something wrong. And I said, you know you're doing it though, right? Like, yeah, so how does my yelling help? They're like, we don't know, but it helps. So I agreed with that one section at that one school to just yell at them more. We agreed to it as a community and I started yelling at them more even though it was a um, performative on my part. But they responded to it. It was bizarre. We came to a meeting of the minds of what I needed to do to help them, help facilitate their learning they explicitly requested it. I said I would try it, and we did. Now, it didn't erase all the problems in that classroom, but engaging my students in a conversation about what I can do to help them learn and then doing it in the form of yelling um, helped. <laughs> I know. It's so, this is a weird, so this is a weird segue now. Do it. Um, I think like the last thing to maybe wrap up our conversation on this are talking about what are the long-term effects of punitive school measures? Yeah. We've talked a lot about, like, you want to create this community. You want to instill discipline. Well, not instill discipline. <laughs> inculcate, flourish discipline. Foster. Foster discipline uh, within your students without going into the punitive. Mm-hmm. And we've given some strategies that we and other teachers have used to do that. But there do still exist these punitive measures. Yeah. And to an extent, teachers can rely upon them. Because they exist. Mm-hmm. Because 
for classroom management, often teachers don't get a ton of support in saying like, hey, here's what you can do. You can try this or let's workshop how to work through these problems. The quick fix, a suspension, mm -hmm. an expulsion, a class removal becomes the go-to. Yeah. And I guess maybe to discourage from that or, or have a broader discussion of, you know, what punishment looks like in school, what are the long-term effects for students? I mean, are there mental? Are there emotional side effects? What does it mean for college and career opportunities? I'd say yes to the mental and the, the socio-emotional sort of impact. I mean, think about the, the idea of mindset that I think they all have potted on before. Ah, uh, um, yes, when we interrogated Carol Dweck's exactly. growth mindset. So um, in that situation, you know, sort of the famous example there is if we continue to compliment students, say, you're smart, you're smart, you're smart, and then a student you know, doesn't achieve a certain level of, uh, you know, academic distinction that they wanted to, even though they've been told they're smart, well, I didn't achieve it, so now I must be dumb mm -hmm. if I wasn't smart. So imagine the flip side of that by telling a student, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. To what extent are we, through a, a constant series of punitive measures, teaching a student that they're a problem child or a misbehaving, you know, miscreant or whatever. Um, and so I, I wonder to what extent um, long-term repeated punitive action um, contributes to a student's formation of their self-perception, contributes to their identity in a way, right? I am that kid who gets into trouble. I am that kid who gets suspended. I'm bad. Mm -hmm. um, and then what is that what do they learn about wanting to be in school or not wanting to be in school or wanting to learn or not learning as a result of it? Well, I think it pushes students away. I think it pushes students away from the school and away from um, learning. And um, uh, I just, if the idea is to bring people to the table, um, the table of knowledge or the table of learning. Um, or the community yeah. within a classroom. Correct. Correct. If, it, if, if we want to make that open and inclusive and bring people in rather than push people away, then um, I think that um, repeated punishment is going to, I don't know, it's like um, it's a repeated exposure to anything. You, you internalize it. Well, and I think it's also the idea that it's exclusionary. Yeah. It, so the idea is that you are no longer able to participate mm -hmm. um, in this classroom, in this democracy in this society. And, and I think a lot of research that has tried to come out and articulate this is the school to prison pipeline. Yeah. I mean, I think a recent study that was done, it was something like 68% of the prison population is a high school dropout or dropped out by the time that they were in high school, wow. creating this, you know, powerful connection. The idea that if a student drops out of high school, mm -hmm. then there's a greater chance of being incarcerated. What often pushes students to drop out? repeated punitive measures mm -hmm. that excludes them from the educational space that say you are not welcome in this space because you do not behave correctly creating that identity and I think drawing that line like that may be creating a line that isn't totally there in some ways because it is more complex than that and there are other social problems um, restriction of housing which restricts to policed communities which for someone who's doing something else that someone in a different community is doing may get incarcerated for. So I don't want to imply that the school-to-prison pipeline is that strict of a line, but it's hard to argue that it doesn't contribute in a meaningful and powerful way to the incarceration numbers that we see. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, when you think about when you have uh, law enforcement um, personnel in mm-hmm. the school as well, um, the um, opportunity for um, unfortunate escalations mm-hmm. of uh, off-task student behavior into law-breaking, which mm-hmm. then puts students into the penal system rather than the educational system, um, uh, it's it's... It's problematic and and disturbing and um, you know quite frankly scary mm-hmm. that um, uh, the school discipline pushes into school punishment, which pushes into legal um, penal interventions, mm-hmm. um, and uh, um, this is a the a question of. I think as as teachers and as educators, it's an and we need to model de-escalation and mm-hmm. learning from conflict as opposed to escalation and um, incarceration. But um, I think ultimately, the if students see certain members of the community are the ones who are routinely punished, mm-hmm. um, or if they see that certain members of the community who are the grown-ups, the teachers or mm-hmm. the school leaders, are ones who dole out more punishments for certain reasons, those are, those are things that students learn, you know, uh, to, to quote the title of one of my, two of my teachers who wrote a fantastic book, the students are watching, they mm-hmm. watch everything, they take in everything, they learn everything, and that includes the structures that we establish for you know, sort of maintaining a good learning environment, or is it just simply maintaining order? If it's about maintaining order, then the students are going to learn that that's the way it, that's that's the way of the world, it's the way of society, and that's they're meant to conform to that order or the hammer. And another brilliant soliloquy <laughs> from Brian V. Preck. And I think we have to uh, end on that because that was so brilliant. So make sure to tune into us next week. When we're coming at you over the, the, the waves or, or the space or the podcast, whatever. The interwaves. Interwaves. <laughs> Bye. Thanks, y'all.